you know, Satan's primary occupation is not to tempt, but to prosecute. And if the temptation is able to support the prosecution, then he will tempt. Do you see why he tempts? In order to prosecute. That's the case I'd like to make a bit this morning. Hello, this is Peter John. Welcome to Rogue Grace. Thanks for listening to KAPL, for tuning in. And the notion or the idea, the feeling that the devil wants us to have is you've sinned and God is not happy with you. You have left an open door, so something bad is going to happen. He wants you to forget that it's all about grace. That we have a daysman, as the Bible says, in God through Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. See, how often I have heard preached or have preached myself even, as I think about it. You have sinned and so you've left an open door. Something bad is going to happen now. And the fact is, Jesus Christ took our sin. The one who believes that has shut all doors to the bad, to the curse, to Satan. And opened the door to the grace, to the mercy of God, to the Savior. But Satan is smarter than a lot of Christians, I have to say maybe even including you or I at times, because he knows all blessing comes from God. And therefore, he wants us to doubt God, forget about the grace of God. Here's an example in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 3. There was a priest by the name of Joshua. And he didn't continue building the temple because he had filthy linen garments on in that vision of Zechariah on the Day of Atonement. And he was so discouraged he couldn't justify himself as leading the temple project. So Zechariah prays, Lord, do something. And the solution that God brought was an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, later on known as Jesus of Nazareth, I believe, said, bring a new garment. And he cleansed and clothed and crowned him in white linen. And they once again commenced. They once again built the temple of the Lord. See, the devil, here's the thing with that vision of Zechariah and Joshua, the high priest. The devil is always lobbying accusations. And guess what? In Joshua's case, they were correct. They were accurate. Oh, man. The devil and his minions, (laughs) 
minions. I, I can't say that anymore without thinking of the minions. <laughs> One of my daughter's favorite movies. But the min his minions, they got the they got the dirt on me and the scoop on you, don't they? They don't need to make things up. They don't need to fabricate lies just to accuse you or I. They just need to point to the truth about you or I in and of ourselves. And see, the devil wants you to stop building like they did in the days of Joshua. He wants you to stop the, the work of the kingdom. He wants to stop you from going forward. He wants you to feel dirty. And that's how he takes you out, reminding you how disqualified you are or me. So, the best thing to do is ignore him. Ignore even his worst insult. Because resist the devil and he will flee from you, Peter tells us. Just ignore him. Steadfast in the faith. See, if you ignore someone long enough, they'll finally go away. <laughs> right, ladies? <laughs> you know how that works. And so will the devil. Ignore him, even if his accusations are correct. Ignore him. Because Jesus Christ has made you righteous. You're not clothed with filthy garments. But like the guy in our story, Joshua, who was then exchanged his filthy garment for that which was perfect linen. You have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Even as Joshua the priest was clothed by the angel of the Lord, you have been clothed by the angel of the Lord, our Savior. So ignore that slimy, sneaky little serpent who is constantly trying to hiss in your ear how wrong you are. Point to Jesus Christ and say, that's how right I am. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 5. You know the scripture. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you and make you strong. I love how you can't escape God's grace. First, Peter says God gives grace to the humble in this text. And then he ends this text, this paragraph, as it were, we might call it, with the God of all grace, a grace sandwich. Because in between them, it says, resist the devil. How? Start with grace, end with grace. You will only resist the devil by God's grace. 
Grace means unmerited. Grace means undeserved. Grace means even when you stumble, you still don't look to your own power or self-control. Don't lean on your own spirituality or God-fearing faith. No, just get your eyes off yourself. And that's how you resist the devil. He wants your eyes to be on yourself. Remember when Adam and Eve took the fruit from the tree and says their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked? Before that, they didn't realize they were naked. Their eyes weren't opened. The devil wants to open your eyes not to God, not to the Lord, not to his grace, but to yourself. Yuck. When it comes to your weaknesses and your sin, yuck. Seeking whom he may devour. But here's the good news. Look at this term. He is like a devil, like a, he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Or in my version, looking for whom, or I should say looking for someone to devour. Looking for someone to devour. Again, looking for someone to devour. You know what that means? Here's the good news. It means not everyone is edible. Devourable. If he's looking for someone to devour. It means not everyone can he devour. He cannot devour you as you are in Jesus Christ. Because here's the reason. It says that the devil prowls like a roaring lion. He's a wannabe, an imposter, there is one who is truly a lion. I'm not talking about Aslan. Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Look at it. it says, resist him standing firm in the faith. How do you resist this one who's a wannabe lion, who's a serpent, who is seeking to condemn you? And in order to do that, he needs to tempt you. How do you Resist him. It says, standing firm in the faith. You resist him not by focusing on resisting him. <laughs> you resist him not by focusing on not falling to temptation. You resist him by not even taking analysis of your situation. You resist him by being steadfast in the faith. The faith, it says. It's a definite article, the and whenever you read about the faith with that definite article, the, quote unquote, the, it always pertains to the message of justification by faith. Galatians chapter three and many other places. The faith speaks of you are justified by faith alone. That's how you overcome that despicable character, that leader of minions, that slimy serpent whom otherwise would do me in and bring you down, but not now because you are following, you are protected by the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the light that pierces through you 
Welcome back to Rogue Grace. Call it what it is. All right. Rogue Grace. There you go. Now, Joseph, you know, the guy with the coat of many colors, or literally, as my pops has pointed out, big sleeves, right? He says to Pharaoh, in light of the fact that there was crazy dreams in Pharaoh's head. And one of the fellow prisoners 
with Joseph remembered that, oh yeah, this guy, Joseph, he's got this way of interpreting dreams that comes from God. And the cupbearer remembered, he told me I would be out of prison and I was. So he reminds Pharaoh, Pharaoh sent for Joseph. I like how it says, when Joseph had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pretty cool. And so Joseph there is standing before Pharaoh and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And then he says to his brothers sometime later, God sent me here. Wow. That's quite the perspective because how did he get into Egypt? Bound, enslaved, and yet he says to his brothers, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Where are you right now? Could you say that of your relative, wherever you're at in life, maybe your parents, your spouse, your ex-spouse, your kids? Can you say, it's not you who sent me here, but God? You can say that because it's true. It doesn't mean that those things came from God, from your ex or your parents or your kids, but he uses it for good. Boy, thank you, Lord. That you can say to that relative who cheated you or hurt you or ignored you, you can now thank God for that person. Look at Joseph. God used all the envy and jealousy of the brothers. God didn't initiate that envy or that jealousy, but he used it, didn't he, to get Joseph down into Egypt, yes, into a prison cell, but ultimately into the court of Pharaoh. And so Joseph says to his brothers, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And you can say that to that ex, to that parent, to that kid, It was not you that sent me here, but God. And you can now thank God for that person. Yep, for that ex. <laughs> for that old boss. Yep. For that coach. Yep. You mean that person that betrayed me? Yep. God didn't betray you, but he used it to get you where he wants you to be. See what I'm saying? The example is found there with Joseph. Look at this guy, Joseph. There he's standing as a slave in Egypt, being auctioned off by the traders, right? He's stripped down to the waist, being auctioned off into slavery. Do you think at that moment, just imagine him standing there. Do you think at that moment he knew everything was working together for good? <laughs> or how about when Potty's wife came on to him and he resisted her and his reward was being thrown into prison? Do you think he thought or knew that everything was working together for good? How about in the dungeon? What do you think went through his head? Yeah. He's, he's in the dungeon. He says, I resisted the wife. 
If I wouldn't have, I could have lived a good life, but now because I resisted her, I'm in prison. But everything was working together for good. How? A, for Joseph's good, he would become the prime minister. B, his family's good. They would have a place of protection. C, for Egypt's good. The population would be fed. D, for the world's good. We see the prophecies, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything was working together for good for Joseph, his family, Egypt, and the world. When he was standing there, stripped down to the waist, being auctioned off into slavery, everything was working together for good. And it's, it says, look at, all things work together for the good. What good? To make you more like Jesus. That's the next verse in Romans 8, that you are being conformed into his image. You are predestined to be like him. All your troubles, your shortcomings, your failures, your hurt, God uses it together to make you more like Jesus. God doesn't cause it, perhaps. God doesn't make it happen, perhaps. But God will use it for sure. There's a sweetness in your presence All your children running home Singing songs Exaltation, lifting up your name. There's a sweetness in your presence. All your children running home, singing songs of exaltation, lifting up your name. In the land of my father, oh my soul.
want to talk to you at this segment about the significance of trees. Sounds exciting, huh? But let me talk to you about trees in the Bible. Starting with Solomon. In his monarchy, in his reign, there is the record of what he owned, what he did, and part of that record contains information about the trees that he had planted, the plant life, the cedar of Lebanon, the hyssop. It grows out of the walls. This is not Song of Solomon. This is 1 Kings chapter 4. It says he also taught about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. And all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. So here are the guys talking about trees and they're coming out to listen to what he has to say. And he's describing plant life, cedars, hyssop that grows out of walls. So Solomon has a lot of wisdom in this instance when it comes to trees. The cedar. It is the king that speaks of the cedar in all of these trees. Then in the Song of Solomon, by the way, the lady who's longing for the presence of her beloved, as we're seeing on Wednesday night, she says his countenance is like the cedar. So we see the cedar of Lebanon. It's a picture of majesty and strength. In fact, in the Hebrew, the language, literally that word is, for cedar, solid. Why? Its roots grow deep. It can live for a thousand years. That's pretty solid, I would say. And Jesus is the cedar, right, for you and I. Beautiful, majestic, glorious, so strong in the roots. No natural force can cause the fall of the cedar of Lebanon. And, and, and in 1 Kings, it says that Solomon was like teaching on the hyssop that springs from the wall. This hyssop. So you, first we talked about the cedar, right? Now look at the, on the other hand, the hyssop. It's a little weed, as it were, but it's beautiful. More like a bush. It's what they used to sprinkle blood in the sacrifices of the temple of the old covenant. So in this text where Solomon is this king who knows a thing or two about trees, first it speaks of the mass of cedar, then it speaks of a tiny little hyssop plant or a bush. It was the hyssop that was used to sprinkle blood on the doorposts there in Egypt on that first Passover. So if Jesus is that strong, beautiful, majestic cedar of Lebanon, he's also the humble. He's also the gentle. He's also, in this way, the little hyssop as well whether the huge tree or the small 
tree bush. It speaks of Jesus. See, look at the cedar spoke to the storm, right? Hush, as it were, in the time of Jesus. The hyssop was sleeping in the boat before that. The cedar says, I am. And all of the troops fell. Remember that? The hyssop sweated blood in the garden. The hyssop was led to the slaughter and the cedar cried out. It is finished and rose again. Look at you got the perfect combo, don't you? Steel and um, steel and velvet, gold and wood, God and man, cedar and hyssop. Jesus, we praise your name. There is none like you. Never have been, never will there be anyone that compares to our cedar of Lebanon and our hyssop that grows, that springs from the wall. He is both. You said you won't relent, won't let go 
And so next Friday, we're going to open up the phone lines. Now, the reason we're not doing it, well, one of the reasons we're not doing it this Friday is because I didn't give you a heads up. Another reason is my dad, Pastor John, he came up with a cool name for the segment in which we would have phone calls. I don't remember what it was. My brain is fried. So I got to remember what it was and then we'll do it. I almost want to say free for call instead of free for all, but I think that it's better than that. A free for call. No, that's not going to work. So next Friday, if you have any questions about the Bible or thoughts or opinions you'd like to discuss about the Bible, hey, roll grace, baby. Call in. That's what this show is for. So that'll be next Friday. Not free for all Friday. Is it? It might be free for all Friday. Yeah. I think I just got it by accident. Free for all Friday. That'll work. And so that'll be next Friday. I'm writing it down. Free for all Friday. Yeah. That means exactly what it sounds like. What do you want to talk about? Do you have any questions? Do you have any thoughts, comments on the Bible? Pretty much has to be on the Bible because that's what I do. That's what I love. And I know you do too. So great subject matter. The Bible. Great subject matter. Jesus, right? Free for all Friday, beginning next Friday. Okay. So I know you got all kinds of things that you want to inquire about. I know that you've got pages and pages of questions that you need me to answer. (laughs) Right. But if you do have a question or two, hang on to it till next Friday. Love to discuss those things with you. Bible. The Bible does not say that all things are good. It makes it very clear that ever since the garden, that's no longer the case. By the garden, I don't mean your front garden. By the garden, I don't mean your backyard. By the garden, I mean the garden of Eden. The Bible does not say all things are good, but it It does say God causes all things to work for the good. So even when it looks like trouble or sounds like a bummer or seems like a disappointment, in and of itself it may be, but I believe it will work together for the good. So in that way, disappointments are in God's hand, divine appointments. Boom. That'll preach. Disappointments are in fact divine appointments when you have God and God has you. And God, listen to this. This is what I really want to say. If you'll allow me. God loves you enough to let you be disappointed with him in the short term. He does. That's true love. 
when you're a parent and you allow your kids to be disappointed with you for the short term because you know what you're doing, the decision you're making is going to benefit them in the long term? How much more with God, your father? He loves you enough. He's not just going to pamper you, spoil you. He loves you enough to know when to hold back, to say no, to let things happen. But all things work together for the good. And just like you, God is doing that in my life, in my body, in my family. In and of itself, mm, brain surgeries don't seem that good. Crohn's disease, nah, not that good by themselves. In and of itself, if I look back at my life, hmm, death of my mom, death of my sister, not so good at all. Still hurts. But then I see it all work together for good. You see, <clears throat> speaking of my, my mom, she's... She died in a car accident when I was a little kid. In and of itself, that's not so good, is it? It hurts. But now I have a website that was designed and created by a woman who loves me very much. And I'm not talking about my wife in this instance. A woman who knows me just about as good as any other besides my wife. I'm talking about my mom. Wait, Pete, you just said, how does that work? Is she come back from the dead? Is she hanging around post-mortem? No, no. I'm talking about the woman that my father married a few years after the death of my mom. I'm talking about my mom now. She just put together this awesome website. Can't wait to reveal it on Sunday. That's not what makes her awesome. She's been awesome for a long, long time. <laughs> um, at least, for at least 34 years, 33, 32 years. That's how long, long she's been my mom. 32 years. That's a long time. And that's how she's been the whole time. Always helping me, assisting me, coming alongside me in what I need. And so would I say the death of my mom at the, at the on the highway was good? No. Not for me, it wasn't. I don't care what kind of spin you put on it. But does, it, does God work everything together for the good? Oh, yeah. That's just one instance in my life. I have many others, and so do you.
every challenge, there's an opportunity for us to see Jesus in a fresh and new way. Here's an example. Talk about a challenge. Their brother, Lazarus, was in the grave. Now, the older sister, Martha, let's talk about her right now. She comes to Jesus as he's making his way days after his death, Lazarus's, to Jesus. She stops him in his path to the, to the home and then to the gravesite. And look at Martha. She believes in the miraculous for the past because she says, if you had been here, Lord, he would not have died. So she's believing. She has faith in Jesus's power, his miraculous ability for the past. If you had been here, got to hand that to her. Okay. Right. And she also had faith in Jesus's power for the future. For Jesus says to her, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life and that no one will die. That even if they do, they will live forever. Right? Remember that? They're in John 11. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that there will be life. I believe that there will be eternal life upon your coming. So, on that day, she says, that's the future. So she believes in the miraculous for the past. If you had been here, Lord, you would have saved him. And for the future, on that day, I believe it, Lord, that you will bring life. But in the present, Jesus knew she needed him. She needed fresh revelation. And that's why he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. Not just in the past, during the times of David or Moses, not just in the future when he comes again, but in that moment when she needed him, he was present, present to heal. In this moment, you need Jesus not just your past, not just the future, but now he is present. See, what you need is not more money, not healing, not a gift of sobriety or a moment of peace. Those things are beautiful, but that's not what you need more of those things. What you need is revelation of Jesus. All those things are found in him. More money? Yeah. He will provide peace. You bet he will be your peace, not just give it to you. Beautiful. Oh, how I love Jesus. I'm glad he's here with me and you through the Holy Spirit.
Amen. Cool. And you know, not only is his presence with you now in your car or at work or wherever you might be, but Jesus said where there are two or more gathered in my name, I will be right in the middle. By the way, if you ever want to do a fun Bible um, study on a word, look up the word midst, M-I-D-S-T for you old King James, middle for those of newer translations and find out how often Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit is in the middle of a congregation of Israel in the temple and in our gathering together. And so if you go to Applegate, would you pray that this Sunday Jesus would be in the middle of our time? He would be in the midst of his people in a very powerful, tangible way. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm thanking you ahead of time for your prayers for this weekend. May the Lord bless you this weekend. Yep, you made it. It's the weekend. And God will pour out his beautiful, loving spirit upon you and upon your loved ones as you receive him the one who is spirit and truth. This is PJ. God bless you.